If you have your Bibles, this morning we'll be in 2 Peter chapter 2, chapter 1, so sorry, chapter 1. If you're using one of the Bibles there in the seat back in front of you, it should be on page 1019. There are two types of people in this room. There are two types of people in this room. There are people who prepare for a trip weeks in advance. And there are people who prepare for a trip the night before. There are some of you who begin to consider weeks before leaving on a trip, not only the things you might need, but the things you think you might need. And you begin to pack your bags. You begin to get everything in place. As you get ready to depart. And then there's some of you who remember the night before you're leaving. And you're scrambling to find your passports. And you're going at midnight to Walmart to buy shampoo and soaps and things that you need on your trip, just trying to make it on the plane. Today, Peter's going to have us consider the return of Christ. He wants to remind the church that Christ is coming. He's been writing to exiles who are waiting to be home, who are on a journey, as last week mentioned, to an eternal kingdom. And Peter is attempting to encourage the church with this truth. And he's really attempting to prepare them for the coming of Christ and about the surety of this truth. This morning, we, we want to look at two evidences that support the coming of Christ, the, the doctrine that Christ is returning. We want to look at two evidences. But in that, we want to consider three ways that we can ready our hearts for his return. This is our main point for us this morning. Beloved, Christ is coming. So remember the power of the gospel. Contemplate the majesty of Christ and heed the word of God. Beloved, Christ is coming. So remember the power of the gospel. Contemplate the majesty of Christ and heed the word of God. In our first point today, we'll see that one way to ready our hearts is to consider the necessity to remember the power of the gospel, the work of the gospel in our lives. Would you look in your Bibles with me at verses 12 through 15. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by the way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. As our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me 
and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to, at, at any time to recall these things. Our passage today in this section specifically of the letter, again, is highlighting the importance of verses 1 through 11. The important truths that we've been learning for the past two weeks. Peter is attempting to remind them and to bring them to our recollection so that we might grasp them and hide them in our hearts. There are simple context clues within our passage that helps communicate this. The the importance of verses 1 through 11. First, notice that Peter knows that his timing among the living is coming to an end. Peter knows that his life is about to come to an end. And so he's writing to the church with this in mind. Some scholars would even dare to say that this letter seems more like a a testament, a, a last will and testament to the church. And so he communicates in the language that we see here. Look at verse 13. As long as I am in the body... Verse 14, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. Verse 15, so that that after my departure, we can see by his writing, he doesn't expect to to be around for very long. And so he's writing this section of scripture. He's writing this section of letter with with this in mind. But look at the the repetition in these verses. This is another way he wants to highlight the importance of of verses 1 through 11. Look at the the repetition that he uses. Peter wants to remind them. He wants them to remember. In these four verses, we're only looking at four verses, but Peter expresses his desire to remind them in three different instances. Look at verse 12. I intend to always remind you. Verse 13, I think it is right to stir you up by the way of reminder. Verse 15, his desire for them is to be able at any time to recall these things. But what does Peter want them to specifically recall? What does Peter specifically want them to remember? Well, if you look at verse 12, he says, of these qualities, or at the end of verse 15, of these things, Peter is talking about all that he has written in verses 1 through 11. Peter wants wants the church to remember the power and the work of the gospel. This is what is so important to Peter. He's wanting to to write these things at the end of his life. And the thing that comes to his mind is the gospel. And this is why it's so important for us to bring to our minds repeatedly. He wants to remind them, look at verses 1 and 2, that we stand righteous before a holy God because of our faith in Jesus Christ and the work that he accomplished on the cross Listen to what Christ accomplished. This is from, from Peter's first letter in, two, in chapter 2, verse 20, 24. He writes, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 
In chapter 3 of verse 16 in, in 1 Peter, Peter says, For Christ also suffered for once, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The scriptures teach us that Christ died as an effective penal substitute that propitiated Christ, meaning Christ satisfied the wrath of God. And through his death and resurrection, he made atonement for his people, bringing us to God. This is what the scriptures teach us that Christ accomplished. In verse 4 of our chapter, Peter says that we have escaped the corruption of this world. This is the power of the gospel in Jesus Christ. To save those who are dead in their trespasses and sin. And to bring life. And to bring to life the hearts that were once stones. And to make them into flesh. But Peter also wants to remind them of the work of the gospel. This is what we learned last week. The work of the gospel and the lives of his people. How through Christ and being partakers of the divine nature and through his divine power, we supplement our faith. Again, not in salvific ways, but to maturing holiness and sanctification. This is why last week's sermon, the passage for last week, is so important. It's, it's a message that we had to hear over and over again. Because it's about the whole Christian life. It's about the qualities from last week that, that can increase in us today and over the span of our lives. We can, we can actually grow in these qualities. And we can see pieces and chunks of our former self rid from our hearts through the power of the gospel and the work of the Spirit. These are the things that Peter is wanting to remind the church of. I want you to notice this phrase in verse 12. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. These weren't truths that the church didn't know. They were actually established in them, Peter says, and yet... He wants to remind them. And he wants to stir these things in their hearts. And he wants them to remember even, even after he's gone. But, but why would Peter want to remind them of these truths again? Why are these truths so important to be remembered? Why is he making sure that these things are the things that he leaves behind? Because Peter knows that our tendency to ignore and forget the most important truths. Peter knows that our tendency as people and as individuals is to forget the most important things. We are all guilty of this. I know this because I have flown many times. If you've ever flown before, or if you've never flown before, as the plane is moving from the gates and, and beginning to approach the tarmac, 
the flight attendants always come and give us a presentation. Always. They always come and stand distanced on the aisle and they begin to give instructions on the most important things. They give instructions on the safety that you need to know about flying on an airplane. But the more you fly, the more you get on a plane, if you're like me, I'm, I'll be honest, the more you begin to, to ignore the safety protocols. You think about it, when that's happening, what is everybody else doing on the plane? Well, they're picking a movie or they're getting ready to go to sleep. And the most important information is being ignored. And at times, I'm sure that in the most important moments, they're forgotten. We have a tendency to forget the most important things. We have a tendency to ignore the most basic of truths. And Peter knows this. And as he's departing and as he's leaving, he's wanting the church not to forget the most essential truths. To forget the power of the gospel, the message of the gospel, and the work of the gospel in their lives. Let me ask you a, a simple question today, beloved. How often did you recall the truth of the gospel this past week? How often did you recall the truth of the gospel this past week? Did you, did you meditate on the power of the gospel? Did, it, did, did the gospel lead you this week to make effort to supplement to your faith the godly qualities we learned last week? What's great about this passage and, and how Peter is writing about recollection in this section is that I can actually make a, 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 a ready application to last week's sermon, to consideration of last week and the message of God that was preached to us last week. How often did you consider the truths we learned from just last week? As a church, I want you to know we, we want to actually help you with this. We want to help you consider the gospel. We want to bring to recollection the things that we're learning on Sunday morning, even during the week. This is why we provide sermon questions on our website from the previous sermon. And if you're a member in our weekly email, they're included. So that you might just... Just click on that and begin to ask, begin to read questions that would uh, to bring your mind to recollection of things that we have learned. This is also why some of our small groups use those questions as teaching material for their time. Because, because we want to take the truths that we learn on Sunday morning and we just want to squeeze them as much as we can with all of the knowledge of Jesus Christ that we can get from them with all the recollection that God would have us to receive from his word. 
But I, I think this also teaches us the, that the more we grow in Christ, and with each passing day, that our departure from this world is approaching. We should be speaking and reminding others of the gospel. That the closer we feel like we're getting to home, that the more that, more, the, more that the gospel becomes already readily available on our mouths and lips. The more that we talk about it, the more that we speak about it, the more that we revisit it, the more that we consider all that Christ has done. We see that this is what Peter's doing. At the end of his life, what does he bring to the church? The gospel. Doesn't bring something new. He doesn't bring some, he doesn't uh, package the gospel differently. He just brings the gospel to them. Do you find the scriptures permeating more of your conversations, church? Do you find yourself looking to make more and more deposits of it in the lives of others? For the, for the older saints in the room, do you find yourself around and among the young, younger generation to be like Peter, wanting to provide us with more and more reminders of the gospel? I want us to notice at the end of his life, Peter, this is all that Peter gives. It's the same message and the same truths that the church knew and was already established in. It was already in their hearts. I want you to know, church family, our, com our commitment as pastors of this church is to follow Peter's example to shepherd and feed you with the same gospel and the same truths of the scriptures that are timeless, that will never fade away because we believe of its utmost importance for us as a church and we believe that they are utterly sufficient for us. We need nothing new but then what Christ has already given to us in his word. And our desire is to give this to you. Peter wanted the church to remember that which was of great importance, the power and work of the gospel, because he wanted these truths in their minds as they waited on the coming of Christ. But the second way that he wanted to ready them was to lead them to contemplate the majesty of Christ. He wanted them to contemplate the majesty of Christ. Look at verses 16 through 18. For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for which we were with him on the holy mountain. In this section, Peter begins to defend the doctrine of the coming of Christ and he provides his first piece of evidence to its validity. 
we see that this is the focus in the second part of verse 16. Notice when Peter says, when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can see in this chapter of his letter that this is an important focus for him. He wants to emphasize in first. In 1 Peter, uh, we saw his desire to continually encourage the church in the midst of their exile as they waited on the return of Christ. And, and his, um, his, his desire has not changed. But notice, it's not just Peter. He includes the, the word we, the, the, the pronoun we in this statement. Who are the we? Well, it's the other apostles. It's, it's the other apostles and, and the message that they taught and, the, and the, the truth that they disclosed that Christ would return in power at his second coming. It says that they themselves heard it firsthand. If you remember, Christ told them in John 14, 3, that he was going to prepare a place. These are the words of Christ. And he said, I will come again and I will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. This was the, these were the words of Christ to his disciples. Christ taught his disciples that his return would be unexpected. He taught them that they had to be watchful. He taught them that they had to be ready. And what we see in 2 Peter is the false teachers were, be, were coming and beginning to attack the truth concerning the return of Christ. If you notice in our verse there, verse 16, they began to compare them to other Greco myths that were so prevalent in that culture. In chapter 3 of 2 Peter, verse 3, we're going to see that scoffers were coming in the last days scoffing, following their own sinful desires, saying, where is the promise of the coming? We're going to see in just a few weeks that Peter addresses this false teaching specifically. That the false teachers were claiming and denying the validity of the apostolic witness in order to support their own assertions that Christ would not come. And so in this portion, Peter is attempting to defend, he's attempting to provide evidence to address the error of the false teachers that he will explicitly address in the coming chapters. And Peter provides his ground, his defense, there in verse 16. He says, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. These are not just myths and fables, but the apostles were eyewitnesses of the majesty of Christ. They witnessed it. They experienced it. And Peter provides a specific example as evidence to remind and to teach the church. He provides the story and the witness of the honor and the glory of Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. He provides the account of the transfiguration as evidence. If you remember in this story, this story occurs in three of the four Gospels. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up a mountain, and before them, Christ is transfigured. And he puts on display the fullness of his majesty before these men. The same glory that 
will be revealed when his, when, at his coming, he gives them a glimpse in this moment. Gives them a taste. This is what Matthew account tells us about this encounter. He says, and Christ was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. There are two aspects of Christ that that substantiate the evidence for the return of Christ that we see in this story. And I want us to contemplate them today, considering the event. And the first is this. I would like for us to contemplate the divinity of Christ. I want us to contemplate the divinity of Christ. There are two ways that Peter highlights Christ's divinity in this passage. The first is with the use of the word majesty. There in verse 16. The Greek word majesty, this this specific Greek word is used four times in the New Testament. And each time that it's presented, it carries divine overtones. Peter is wanting us to consider the grandeur and the greatness of the divinity of Christ. With one simple word, Peter communicates the divinity and the glory and the majesty of Christ Jesus. The Hebrew writer says this of Jesus in Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is the glory that Jesus speaks of in his high priestly prayer of John 17. It's the glory that is given to him by the Father because they are one. And Jesus actually ends that prayer with his desire for his people, for those that would believe, you and I who sit today here, who have placed our faith in Christ, that we would see that glory. But secondly, look at how Peter emphasizes the deity of Jesus Peter says in verse 17, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father. At this event, Christ received honor and glory from who? Do you see it in verse 17? Peter says from God the Father. Hope you don't miss this. This is, hope you don't just pass over this. But this is very important because it begs the question, who does God share his glory with? Well, Isaiah answers the question for us in, in Isaiah 48, 11. God says, my glory I will give to no other. Christ receives honor and glory from God the Father because Christ and the Father are one. Their glory is their same. Their essence is the same. And this only adds to the weight and the veracity of the moment being referenced by Peter. This moment of transfiguration that he's providing as evidence that displays the fullness of Christ's intrinsic glory and the certainty of his divinity and messiahship to be confirmed. But the second aspect of Christ that I want us to consider is the divine approval of the Father. Look at the second part of verse 17. And the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. 
Here Peter continues to recount his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. And what the Father said to the Son at this moment, this scene at the Mount of Transfiguration isn't a moment just so that Christ could reveal his glory to his disciples as a way to provide evidence to his claim. It's not just that, but it's also a means of demonstrating the fullness of his glory that would, re- that would be revealed at his second coming. This evidence, this is evidenced by the statement, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This language is used in the gospels for this story and it's referenced again here for Peter and I don't want us to miss this. It's actually meant to draw our attention to Psalm chapter two. In Psalm chapter two, verse seven, this is what the psalmist says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son today. Today I have begotten you. Psalms 2 is a messianic psalm. And it communicates how the Messiah would be appointed by God and declared his son. But it also made reference to the subjugation of the nations and the universal dominion that the Messiah would possess. Psalm 2 was a way to to show that the Messiah would come. He would be the son of God and he would have dominion over all the nations and over all of creation. Listen to what the psalmist says in verses 8 and 9. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of your earth your possession You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. See, with the the father's declaration on the mountain, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. With that directed to Jesus, with that directed to Christ, he's, he's not only asserting the messiahship of the son, but he's declaring Christ to be the rightful king who will forever reign on the throne of David who is returning with certainty based on the declaration of God to judge and rule over all of creation. I hope that you don't miss the fact that that the transfiguration and Peter moving our attention there is to demonstrate the surety of Christ's return. Because Christ must return. He has to return to rule over all that he has created. Contemplating the majesty and the glory of Christ helps us to prepare and anticipate the coming of his return. I'm going to continue down the travel illustrations. Have you ever booked tickets to a place you have always wanted to visit and never have? Have you ever done that before? Have you ever gone somewhere for the first time you were just really excited? What's a typical next step? after booking those tickets? Well, you, you probably begin to research the city or the country that you're, that you're wanting to visit. You attempt to, to verse yourself as well as you can with the lay of the land. You, you inquire of others. You read blogs. You, you typically spend a vast amount of your time attempting to know and think about the places that you want to visit. And then what follows? Well, the closer 
that the trip becomes, the more your anticipation grows. You would spend time, church family, contemplating the majesty and the glory of Christ. I don't want to present this as abstract. I don't want to present this as abstract. Because Christ is the radiance of the divine glory. And it is possible for us to catch glimpses of his glory. Not in the same way Peter saw it with our physical eyes, but we can see it with our spiritual ones with eyes of faith. As we read the scriptures and as we believe what it says about Jesus and his intrinsic glory, the demonstration of his divine attributes, we are by faith getting a look and a taste of his divine glory. Do you contemplate the glory and the majesty of Christ as to know him more fully? Do you spend time in God's word, searching him out? Listen to what one theologian says. God is truly and really known in Christ. For he is not his obscure or shadowy image, but he impresses which resembles him. We have been given the word of God that we might know him and delight in him. And as we read and search and meditate the scriptures, we're able to know more of who he is. We're able to, to view in glimpses more and more of his glory and his majesty. And so Peter provides his first piece of evidence that the second coming is not a myth. Rather, it's, it's anticipated by this historical event, the transfiguration to which eyewitnesses testified. But he provides a second piece of evidence. And this leads us to our third point on how to ready our hearts for Christ's return. Heed the words of God. Heed the words of God. Look at verses 19 through 21. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts knowing that, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. The second piece of evidence that Peter gives to support the return of Christ are the Scriptures. Notice that in verse 19, Peter says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Peter here is talking about the entirety of the Old Testament Scriptures. And this idea that they're more fully confirmed, I think is more clearly presented in the CSB when it says, we also have the prophetic word strongly confirmed. Peter isn't comparing the transfiguration and the scriptures as to which is more reliable, but the scriptures are confirmed and that the, the transfiguration only supports its reliability and authority. This is as one theologian put it. The authority of the word of God is the same as it, has, as it was in the beginning. And then it was given further confirmation than before by the advent, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. There has never been a time where the scriptures wasn't the word of God. And the arrival of the Lord Jesus in his ministry, his transfiguration, his death, 
his resurrection, his ascension, only demonstrate the legitimacy of its claims and the truth of, our, of God's word. And because they are so sure, because they are so strongly confirmed, Peter says that we will do well to pay attention. And he brings along the same illustration that the psalmist uses of the scriptures. He says, they are as a lamp shining in a dark place. Peter is teaching the church how the scriptures are more reliable and trustworthy, enough to guide us on our journey, church. Listen to what the psalmist says in 119. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light into my path. Verse 130, the unfolding of your words give light. It imparts understanding to the simple. A few weeks ago, I took this chap chapter and I started to underline places where the psalmist was asking uh, some form or help from the Lord. And this is what I have learned thus far. I'm, I'm still not done with this exercise. Eight times in Psalms 119, the psalmist asks to be taught by the Lord his statutes. And these are just a few of the reasons why he wants to be taught by the Lord. So that false ways can be put aside. So that he can be kept. Because the psalmist knows that God is good and his ways are good and he wants to be taught God's ways. Six times in Psalms 119, the psalmist asks for understanding. Why? So that he can keep the law. So that he can learn the commands. So he can know the testimonies of God. The psalmist asks eight times in Psalms 119 that the Lord would give him life. We saw one of those in our reading this morning. And half of those are according to the word of God. Peter is helping us with a simple illustration that comes from the very word of God to teach us that scriptures can be trusted to lead and guide us to the one who has eternal life. Peter also says how long we should pay attention to these scriptures. Look at what he says in verse 19. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter points us back to the coming of Christ and his return. We must trust and rely on the word of God until he returns. Peter gives us two reasons why we should trust the scriptures as the word of God. Look at verses 20 and 21. Knowing this, first of all, that no scripture, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy has ever been produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The first reason Paul argues for the scriptures being the very word of God is because the interpreter of the scripture is the very spirit of God. This is the doctrine of inspiration. This is what we believe about the scriptures. We believe men spoke from God. It's clear in verse 21. But we also believe that they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Alistair Begg makes it simple for us today. The doctrine of inspiration is simply this. The Holy Spirit took real men with different personalities from a variety of different social settings and the Holy Spirit cooperated with them while revealing himself to them. But then he gives a second reason on why we can trust the reliability of the word of God. And this is because, Peter writes, it originated from God himself. This is why its interpreter must be the spirit of God. 
Paul puts it this way, 1 Timothy 3, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the men of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What makes the scriptures able to guide us? What makes it able to teach us? What makes it able to instruct us? Well, it's the fact that it's the very word of God. The fact that it is given to us by God to light our path. And so, Lord, and so church, we want to submit ourselves to it. And we want our lives to be submitted to it and under its authority. I know I've shared this story once before, um, but there was one time I went camping out into the rotting Wadi Rum, which would be the desert, the wilderness of Jordan. Uh, but I think about this illustration often because, because I don't think I have ever been to a place that was so open and yet so dark, so black. We arrived during the day and, and went hiking, but by dinner time, as the sun began to set, uh, there were lanterns placed around our camp and began to create the distinction between the wilderness and our camp. The light created the distinction, and it showed us what was, what, was, what was the camp and what was the wilderness, and it showed us what was safe and what was unknown. But the light also helped us to see clearly within the bounds of our camp. It helped us to walk in confidence without fear of our inability to see. Do you trust God's word to guide your life in this way? Do you, do you allow it to lead you confidently through this journey as you wait for his return? Do you approach God's word in humility, knowing that you need it to teach you and instruct you? that you need it to speak into the dark crevices of your heart to reveal to you where the root of your sin lies. This is, this is a work that only God's word can do. Let me give you a, a quick example. It can reveal to us that sometimes when our frustration, or it can reveal to us that in moments where we're frustrated and not getting our way, is selfishness. But it can actually begin to do the work to go deeper to show that an underlying layer of that selfishness is actually our pride. Because we desire and truly want the focus to be on us. And yet there's an even further layer that God's work is able to do to show us that our pride at times is just a manifestation of our idolatry. That, that what we worship is actually the self, prioritizing that above all others, including God himself. Do we let the light of God's word do its work in our hearts? Do you approach God's word in faith, 
believing and trusting it for every facet of your life. Peter here is wanting to set our attention on the surety of the return of Christ by setting our minds and hearts on the power of the gospel and leading us to consider the majesty and the glory of Christ and moving us to consider heeding the words of God. Very quickly, just two responses for us this morning. Two final responses for us to consider. The first one is this. Remind your heart to enjoy Christ. Remind your heart to enjoy Christ. I would just encourage you this morning to remind your heart of the necessity to enjoy Jesus to contemplate his goodness, to contemplate his sacrifice for you, to to begin to think that he is coming for us and that we will dwell with him forever. But secondly, ready your heart to meet Christ. Ready your heart to meet him. I pray that as a church, we would continue to grow in our desire to see the king. That we would grow in anticipation, not only of Sunday mornings, because it's, it's it's a way of pointing us to Christ, but growing in anticipation of his actual return. One way that we ready our hearts for this is even to consider what we learned last week. And it's striving for holiness. It's, it, it, it's participating in the work of the Spirit to grow increasingly in the qualities that we discussed last week. So I just want to encourage you in these two ways. Remind your heart to enjoy Christ and ready your heart to meet him. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, in the name of Jesus, we come. And we thank you for the surety of your return. We thank you that you have not left us, nor have you abandoned us, but we can trust that your return is imminent. So I pray, Father, that you would grow our hearts, waiting to desire for that I pray, Lord, that you would help us to consider your glory and your majesty today and that by it, it would direct the way that we live this morning and this week. I pray that you would help us to trust in your word for every aspect of our lives, for our marriages, for how to conduct ourselves in our work, for the moments of our ailments and our sicknesses, for the moments when we fall into sin. But for every instance of our lives, I pray that you would help us to to heed what your word would say and to trust it with our whole hearts. Lord, would you bring reminders of the gospel to our minds and to our hearts often. And may we speak with them, not only amongst ourselves, but with those who do not know you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.